Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. I'd like to begin um, talking about a word that isn't used a lot these days. Uh, People don't, I think it's like almost an old-fashioned word, and yet it was a word that I grew up with. The word is obey. People don't talk about obeying anymore, but I was raised, you know, children obey your parents, and in the New Testament there are other places where it talks about obeying your leaders and that kind of thing. The word obey comes from, in both the Hebrew and the Greek languages, it comes from a root word that means to hear or listen. And in the Greek language, it's a a compound word. It means to listen under. And so to obey means you hear something and you put yourself under that. It's used uh, later in the Gospels, or I'm sorry, in the Epistles, it talks about the Gospel, how we need to obey the Gospel. And how do you obey the Gospel? Well, you hear the message and you submit to that message. You listen under that message. Now, today what I'd like to talk about is the connection between obeying God and joy because I think there is a connection there, and many times we're just not aware of it. We don't realize that when we do things that or are living our lives in such a way that um, it doesn't line up with what God says is good and right, that we will lose our joy. I'll hopefully demonstrate that in a minute. When I was growing up, our family had two dogs. One was called Sandy. He was a short-haired mix that um, was called Sandy because he had that color fur. The other one was a, a poodle, a toy poodle named Sparky. I didn't like Sparky that much. He's very yippy. <clears throat> but I used to love to play with Sandy. And um, I would clap my hands and chase Sandy, and he would start running around. He'd run around the living room table there and everything. But then as I kept clapping, he'd get more excited, and he'd run into the dining room and around the table there, and then back in, he'd be doing these figure eights. And then, and then he'd shoot down the hallway, and he'd be in the bedrooms and just running everywhere. And it was just, just kind of a lot of fun playing with him. Well, one day I was in the living room. I was sitting on the sofa there, and I noticed that there was, there were some papers in this big family Bible that we had setting on the table directly in front of the sofa. And I'd never seen papers in the Bible before, and so I opened it up as like one of these huge Bibles with pictures and things, <clears throat> and I found a genealogy of our family that someone had put together, plus the story of when different relatives came to the United States and that kind of thing. And as I was looking at this, suddenly my dog Sandy came in, and I was already bored with the genealogy, so I set it down and, and, and I began to play with Sandy, clapping my hands. Sandy starts running around. Well, my mom walked in. She saw the Bible there. She saw the genealogy out there. And she said, you better not get Sandy all riled up because he's going to destroy those. I, I didn't listen. I didn't listen under... I was playing with Sandy. I thought, you know, I'm here, right here. You know, nothing's going to happen while I'm right here anyway. 
Sandy was getting more and more excited, running down the hallway and into the rooms and this and that. And then at a certain point, I was done playing with Sandy and nothing had happened. I walked into my bedroom. About two minutes later, maybe a little longer, I came out, walked into the living room. I could not believe my eyes. Sandy was wild, tearing apart that genealogy. Paper was flying in the air. He, he was using his mouth. He was tearing it up. It was like confetti on a New Year's Day parade. The whole thing was just reduced to just these little pieces of paper. And I thought, oh, no. The last thing that my mom had said was, close the Bible, put it in, put it in. I had not listened to her. Now what am I supposed to do? And I knew I was in trouble. I, I, I picked up all the pieces, and it actually took a while, and I hid them. Uh, and to this day, I don't remember where. And I lived in fear for a while. The shadow of this event. In fact, I disobeyed my mom, but then what was going to happen when she found out? Sooner or later, they were going to realize that it's not in there. The genealogy's not in there. Mom would remember that I was the last one that was playing with the dog and, and had seen the genealogy, and she would know. And, and for days, probably weeks, I, I had trouble even sleeping over this incident, and I never did tell them what happened, and it seems like they didn't notice. It turns out it didn't matter that much because they had a bunch of copies of the same thing. Like five, five copies, one for each of us. It's like I went through all of that agony, almost for nothing, you know? We bring a lot of stress and distress on our lives when we don't obey, when we don't listen. When children don't obey their parents, when you don't listen to your boss or a teacher or another authority, when we disregard what we're told to do. Oftentimes, there are consequences for that, and we bring unnecessary things, suffering in our lives, and this is true also with our relationship with God, though, again, I don't think we're aware of it. I think we go through our lives, and we're not aware of the fact that at a certain point, because we've said no to God, or we're saying yes to something that we shouldn't be saying yes to, our joy is missing, and we just don't realize it's not there. We're not aware of the fact that this abundant life that we were enjoying as a Christian is kind of gone. Our relationship with God is not what it should be. Our joy evaporates because God expects us to do what he asks us to do, to obey him, to listen under him, and it's the best way to live. And, of course, God speaks to us in different ways. I think primarily he speaks through the Bible, which is why we encourage you to read the Bible. What God says is right, is right. What God says is not, is not. I think God speaks through other people. And God uses other people to get our attention, to come in and say, you should stop doing this or you should do this. And then God also speaks in our own heart. I don't know what it'll be for us today as you think of your own life. But when we give ourselves to things we shouldn't, when we say no to God, when we disobey, then we experience something in our relationship. Something comes between us and God. In Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, the sons of Korah, who wrote some of the Psalms, uh, wrote about Jesus. I believe it's pointing directly to Jesus in the Messianic kingdom. But notice the, the relationship between doing what was right, avoiding what is wrong, and joy. Psalm 45, 6 and 7, your throne, God, is forever and ever. I think, again, it's a reference to Jesus. 
The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, so that's the heavenly Father, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy more than your companions. Because you always do what's right and you always avoid what is wrong. It's, it's like you're covered in this anointing oil. You know, they used to pour this fragrant oil on the head of the priest and it would just saturate their clothing. And Jesus was someone who was just saturated with this joy. Now, today we continue our series based on the book of Philippians, Finding Joy in Uncertain Times. First week of the series, I talked about the joy that comes from just the good news of the gospel message. That if you're right with God, you have a relationship with God, regardless of what's happening in the world, you can have joy. Last week I talked about relationships and how relationships lead to joy when we're united with one another and when we're close in our relationship with our Creator. But today I want to talk about joy that comes from doing what God asks us to do. My takeaway is joy comes when we work with God who is working in us. This comes from Philippians 2, 12 and 13. We experience joy in our lives when we work with or cooperate with God, with what He's trying to do in and through our lives. In other words, when we obey Him. Now, today I want to give you four reasons why obeying God just makes sense. And the last one has to do with the joy. But first, we should obey because of the example of Jesus. So we call ourselves Christians. We're, we're followers of Jesus. We're disciples. A disciple, the word there means a listener, or learner, I'm sorry, a learner. And so we're learning from Jesus' teaching and we are learning from Jesus' example. And, and that's what we're supposed to be doing, following the example of Jesus. And last week I talked about the fact that Paul encouraged us to look at the example of Jesus and follow the example of Jesus. He gave Jesus as the one that we're to imitate our lives after. But one area in which we are to follow Jesus is in the area of obedience. And Jesus obeyed under very difficult circumstances. And so in verse 8, Philippians 2, 8, Paul wrote, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross, the most painful, the most humiliating death that was imaginable in their day. Do you realize that Jesus never said no to his heavenly Father? There was never a situation in Jesus' life where God said, I want you to do this, and he said, I don't want to. I know you're saying do this, but I'm going to do this thing over here. And it wasn't easy for him to obey under these difficult circumstances when Jesus would say to his heavenly Father, please take this cup from me because God, I know you're asking me to go to the cross. But, not my will, I will do what you say to do. It is the way to joy. John, one of Jesus' closest friends, wrote about this. Recording Jesus' words in John 15, 10, and 11, notice the two byproducts of obedience here. Jesus said, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. There's a secret there. That when we obey Christ, that we, we, we find ourselves remaining in his love. Now, don't misunderstand what it's saying here. This is not saying that God loves you less when you disobey. You know, when you, when you don't do what you should do, God loves you the same. 
But what this is talking about is the fact that you won't experience his love. Jesus walked in this constant relationship with his father, born out of this obedient relationship. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And, and, and if we remain in Christ, in his love, it'll mean that we obey. But then he also talks about the fact, I'm telling you all this so you have joy. So your joy will be complete. And so it matters that we follow the example of Jesus. Second, we should obey because our God is God. God has a right as our creator to ask us to do things. He has a right to expect that we would do it, what he asks. Let's begin reading in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 2 where we, we read then, so then my dear friends, Paul writes, just as you have always obeyed, there's our word, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who's working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. Now, Paul starts by saying here that even when I'm not with you, I hope you'll obey. In fact, obey more when I'm not with you. We all know that there are people that kind of do the right thing when someone's watching them. You know, I think of an employee in the workplace who's kind of lazy, but then the boss comes in. Someone says, the boss is here, and all of a sudden, everybody's so busy, you know, because the boss is there, and you want to impress your boss. And Paul was basically saying here, don't obey God just when I'm here. In fact, do it more when I'm gone. Why? Well, he says, because God is at work within you to will and to work for his good pleasure because God is always with you. He's always with you. And so it doesn't matter with, with whether Paul was there or not. Now, verse 12 is misunderstood. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It does not mean work for your salvation. Now, the word salvation means deliverance, specifically deliverance from the penalty of sin. It means to be delivered from hell, from judgment to come. We, we want to be saved. We want to be delivered. But we don't work for our salvation. It's, it's something we receive as a free gift. Paul made that very clear to the Ephesians. He said, for by grace, which is God's kindness, you are saved. Through faith. It's, it's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. We don't work for salvation. We receive it as a free gift. So what does he mean when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Well, he's basically saying that you, you humbly flesh out your faith with a holy reverence toward your creator. I think this is the idea behind having this fear and trembling. It's recognizing that God is God. And there's a work that we do to flesh out our own relationship with Christ. Dr. P.D. O'Brien puts it this way. He says, Paul has in his mind a continuous, sustained, strenuous effort which is elsewhere described under the imagery of a pursuit, a following after, a pressing on, a contest, a fight, or a race. There's an effort that we put to the Christian life. Now, over the years, I've run into a lot of Christians who have put all the emphasis on our Christian life on what God does. Like, it's all God. It's not you at all. Any victory you have, it's all God. And I admit that if we can live a victorious Christian life, it's because of God. There's no doubt about that. But we're reading here about kind of a cooperation. 
that takes place because God is working in us. We're working, and we're cooperating with Him. Now, many of you know that I wrestled when I was in college. I wouldn't recommend that anybody start wrestling in college, but that's what I did. The school provided everything I needed to wrestle. They provided the little singlet I wore, really ugly. They provided the, the headpiece, you know, to protect my ears so I wouldn't get what was called cauliflower ears from your, your ear on the mat type of thing. You had special boots you had to wear so you didn't kick someone in the face with a hard-heeled shoe. You know, they, they gave me all the equipment. Also, they trained me. One of the guys on the team was the state champion in Michigan, state champion wrestler. And he was showing me how to do it, how, how you pull under this, this point and, and tackle someone and pin them this way and leverage yourself. And so the training was there, and then there was also coaching. Coaching took place on the day of the match. So they, they provided everything I needed, but they did not go on the mat for me. They didn't. Nobody, I, I had to be the one to wrestle. There, were, there wasn't even anyone on the team that could wrestle for me because no one was as light as I was. And um, I was horrible. I mean, I, re I really was horrible, but they loved me on the team because we were a small school, 1,300 students, and I would show up match after match, and they, the other team never had my weight, except two times all, all season. I wrestled twice. But you know, I, I had to be the one to go out on the mat. And we have to recognize that God is, is working in us. This is where I got my, my takeaway, by the way. Joy comes when we work with God who's working in us. So we work with God, but this phrase is important, this, this fear and awe and reverence that we're to have. This idea that we should obey God because God is God and we are not. Now, we don't always understand what it is that God wants us to do or why. Neither do children, by the way. And I don't think parents always have to tell the children why. I think it's a good idea usually because if a child understands why, they might be motivated. But you know, if you've got a two-year-old, three-year-old, and you're saying, do not stick the fork in that socket, you know, whether they understand or not doesn't matter. And God sometimes asks us to do things, and we may not understand why. But Paul says we need to live this way with a certain fear and trembling before God. What does that mean? Well, commentator O'Brien defines the phrase fear and trembling this way. He said it's an examination, I'm sorry, an examination of the other contexts where the phrase fear and trembling appears in the Bible suggests that the phrase has to do with an attitude of due reverence and awe in the presence of God, a godly fear of the believer in view of the final day. Lots of verses in the New Testament talk about the fact we need to live a certain way as Christians in light of the, the fact that one day we're going to stand in the presence of our Creator. One example is what Peter said in 1 Peter 1.17. He said, if you address as Father, and I, I love the title Father, but if you address as Father, the one who judges impartially based on each one's work you are to conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your temporary residence. This time on this earth is, is short-lived. It's temporary. And we need to live a certain way knowing that we're going to stand in His presence with fear. Now, this, this word fear doesn't mean to be afraid. And it's, it's, it's not like even like children are to be afraid of their parents. 
although we're to respect them. And, but it is recognizing that a parent is a parent. It is recognizing that God is God. And I think sometimes we think we just have the right to say no. Can you imagine if you lived in biblical times and a, the king called you in and said, you're to stop doing this thing over here. Or the king said, from now on, I want you to do this. Would you obey? Would you do, I mean, you'd come before this king kind of a little bit in trembling. Would you do what the king said? Of course you would. And yet we think somehow, you know, that God asks us to do things and we don't have to. We should obey because we have the example of Jesus and because our God is God. Third, we obey because we care about those who don't know Christ. Our obedience reflects well on our God and on our gospel when we do what God wants us to do, when we live in a, a way that reflects what it means to be a Christian, it, it just points to our God, and the world is watching. Now, in Philippians 2, 14 through 16, Paul gave the Philippians a couple specific commands to obey. And so here's almost like the first test of their obedience. Will you do what I'm about to ask you to do? Let's read beginning in verse 14. Paul said, do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. Hold firmly to the message of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. He'll be able to boast because the church will still be going strong because people will be one to faith in Christ. Now he talks here about being blameless and faultless. He doesn't mean sinless. That's not what the words mean here. None of us in this life will ever be sinless. But what he is talking about is that there should be nothing about our lives as Christians that someone can point to. An unbeliever can point to and say, you're a Christian and you did that? You cheated here? You did this thing over here? It's to be kind of above reproach. A good example of what we're talking about here is Daniel in the Old Testament. His peers looked for some way to accuse him. And they were looking for corruption or they were looking for negligence. They were looking for both things. He was a governmental leader. Was there any corruption in his dealings? They couldn't find any. Was there any negligence, anything that fell through the cracks because he wasn't doing what he should be doing? And the answer was no. So they went after Daniel in regard to his faith. And he ended up in the lion's den. You remember the story. Paul himself was one who said, I do my best to maintain a blameless conscience both before God and others. But it's because we live in, in a, a world that is, is corrupt. When it says here that the, the, this generation is perverted, it means warped or twisted. And we're, we're told here that we're like lights in this world. And when people see our lives and see our example, it's of course what Jesus said, let your light shine for people so that they could see your good deeds and see what you're like as a Christian and then they'll glorify God. Now the specific area in which Paul was addressing here for them to obey was grumbling and not complaining. And, and it can be translated just petty complaining. It's really the opposite of rejoicing, isn't it? And I think he picked this example because of the two women in chapter four I talked about last week who couldn't get along with each other. But you know, complaining is a really a, a, a good way to obey because You'll stand out if you don't complain. If you don't, if you don't complain in the workplace, like I worked in a lot of secular positions before I became a pastor and complaining was a pastime. 
Almost every company I work for, they complain about the boss. They complain about the way they're treated. They're complaining about this or that, even the food in the cafeteria. Complain literally about everything. When we complain, we're basically saying, God, you're not taking care of me. That's, that's how it's interpreted. And Paul is saying here, you know something? You are holding out the word of truth, the word of life for people in this crooked generation. Don't complain. Make sure that you're blameless in this particular area. I tell the story in my book, When God Walked Alone, of a time when I was a supervisor in Columbus, Ohio, for a high-tech firm. Got back from vacation. Two guys walked over to me and asked, how was the vacation? And I, I said to them, well, it was really great, but what am I doing back here? And I kind of went like that. And the one guy said, I won. And the other guy said, no, you didn't. I won. He said, that wasn't complaining. I found out the two had made a bet, a $5 bet. One of them had said to the other, when Tim gets back from vacation, he will not complain about being back. And the other one said, yes, he will. Everybody complains. Bet you $5 on it. And then they come, I come back, and I give this answer. What am I doing back here? And they couldn't tell if it was a complaint or not. And I don't know how they resolved it. But I'll tell you, after that happened, I thought, I can't believe somebody's watching me that closely. I wasn't trying to be a goody two-shoes in the workplace. I wasn't even aware that anyone noticed anything particular about my attitude, although I will tell you, I was memorizing the book of Philippians at the time. I was aware of this, these verses, don't complain, don't grumble. And people noticed. And so we should obey because we care about those who don't know Christ. Last point I want to make is we should obey because it results in joy. And here's where we come full circle. You know, my, in my opening story, the joy disappeared because I disobeyed my mom. And there were consequences for it. And so I was bothered about both things, both that I had disobeyed, but also the potential consequences. There is, again, a connection between obeying and finding joy. We see this in other areas of life. In other areas of life, for example, if you don't eat well, you know you're not going to feel well. If you eat something you're not supposed to eat, you, you know that, right? If somebody drinks too much, they're not surprised the next day when they feel horrible, right? If you don't study, you're not surprised that you don't, don't do well on the test. If you refuse to exercise, you're going to feel lethargic. And in my case, you know, I gain weight if I don't get a little bit of exercise or whatever. I, I, I see the connection between the things I should do or don't do and the effect. But we don't see again this connection between doing what God says and the joy Paul ends this section that we're looking at here today with his own example of how he sold out for Christ, obeying himself to the point of death himself. He says in verse 17, he says, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. In the same way, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. In Bible times, there are different kinds of sacrifices, you know. There was a grain offering, there was a, 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 an animal you'd sacrifice, and then there was what was called a drink offering that you just emptied it out. And Paul's talking about his death here. He says, even if I'm going to die, in my service to Christ and you, I am filled with joy, and you need to be filled with joy as well. I think it's the ultimate outcome of living a life of obedience to our God. Now, Philippians chapter 2 ends with two examples that Paul gives, and there are two other people that 
are obeying Christ and going the distance and ones who had experienced joy in their lives. One was Timothy and one was Epaphroditus. Both of them were going to be taking Paul's letter back to the Philippians. Paul said about Timothy in verses 20 and 21, he said, I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests because all the others seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Paul was saying, you know that Timothy, I'm sending Timothy to you because he loves you the same way I do. And the problem is all the others aren't interested in what is on Jesus' heart. But Timothy, Timothy is. Epaphroditus in verse 29, he was the guy that brought the letter to Paul and brought the gift. We read about him, therefore welcome him in the Lord with all joy. Epaphroditus was going to come with this letter. Paul's saying, welcome him with all joy and hold men like him in honor because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. You honor people like this. He almost died serving Jesus. And suddenly I find in this chapter four wonderful examples to follow. And they're part of the joy-filled life. The example of Jesus, the example of Paul himself, the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. So let me summarize and close with a couple questions of application. Joy comes when we work with God, who's working in us. And we obey because of the example of Jesus, because we fear God, we revere God. We care about those who don't know Christ. We want to live in a certain way that points people to him. And, and then obedience results, I think, in joy. So let me ask you this. Is there something that you know that God has been speaking to you about? Where God is saying either, you know, you're doing this thing over here and I'm asking you not to anymore and you know it. Or God is saying to you, I wish you would do this thing over here even though it's hard. I'm asking you to obey me and do this thing. And you're saying no to him. My question is, are you, are you willing to at least consider doing what God asks you to do? And if you're not willing, then I want to ask you, are you willing to at least pray that God would give you the willingness? Because this is the path to joy. I've run into too many Christians who are just not living for Christ. They're just not living in obedience, and they can't figure out why they have no happiness, no joy, no close relationship with God. In some ways, it's not rocket science. There is indeed a connection. And I hope that we'll make the choice that allow us, because God is working in us but we need to work alongside him. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the examples that you've given to us. Thank you that you're working in us, that you do lead us in the way you want us to go. And I just pray you give us a heart that's willing, a heart that's willing to say yes to you so that we might experience the joy and the love that comes from being connected to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me close by reading a blessing that Moses gave over the people of Israel when he would say goodbye to them. The blessing was this, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. Have a blessed week. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.